As Katrina said, we've come to the end of Ephesians. I hope. <clears throat> Remember, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, however long the sermon is. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we come to your word, your inspired word, your word to us this morning, on this day that you've made, that you will speak into our hearts, not just into our minds, but into our hearts as well, that you'll move our wills, our dispositions, the Father together as the people of God we might become more and more the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So please would you keep that passage open, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, page 1177. In Ephesians, Paul's great concern is that the church should be the church. When you become a follower of Jesus, you become part of, the, of this body of Christ, the church, which manifests itself in local congregations. Every congregation is the church. And his great concern is that the church should be the church. You see, the church of Jesus Christ is the presence of the future. What will one day be where everything is united under Christ, where there is harmony and when there is peace, where Christ reigns uncontested that future has broken into the present and it is present in the local church. And Paul wants the church to be the church. And if it's going to be the church, then it means that we need to be a community of love and a community of forgiveness and a community of purity and a community of, of wisdom. And that makes us a community of resistance. That's what we've been looking at. Paul wants the church to be the church. Or if you want to put it like this, he wants us to become more and more who we are. Now here's the thing we need to understand. It is the hardest thing in the world for the church to be the church. It is the hardest thing in the world. Do you know why? Well, Paul tells us. There it is. In verse 12. There it is. He says, Our battle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. When he talks about rulers and principalities and powers there, he is talking about spiritual opposition. Why is it the hardest thing in the world to be the church? Because hell's against us, that's why. Because the one thing above all that Satan wants to do is to destroy the church. And if he can't destroy it, to make it ineffective. We are involved in a spiritual battle. And if we don't understand that, we will fail to be the church. 
will fail to be the church because we don't recognize the enemy for who the enemy is. And because we try to do church in a way that's to do with our own strength and our own abilities, we'll do it in the wrong way. It is the hardest thing in the world to be the church, and it is enormously costly. There's a spiritual battle involved in every local church that's seeking to be the church. And it involves real people, and it involves real cost. This kind of passage is really a computer gamer's dream, isn't it? You know, some of you are young enough to know about computer games, and you? You know the kind of thing where you have those battles in computer games, and you get to choose the... Armor, you could, you could be a Roman legionary. And so what you can do is you get to choose and you, you choose the helmet. You say, I'll have, I'll have a centurion's helmet. And you get to choose the sword and you get to choose the breastplate and, and then you get to choose the shield. And you go off in your computer game and you, you sit by your computer and you have your cup of coffee no, because you're, you're really clever and you know that you'll get so excited you'll knock the coffee over so you make sure you put that somewhere else. You get into this computer game and you go off and you fight the ogres and you take the castles and the citadels and you destroy enemies and at the end of two hours... There are deaths all over the place. In fact, you died, but you didn't really because you got an extra life because you'd killed so many people. And you were able to take extra armor. And so at the end of two hours, you're exhilarated and sweaty and you have wasted two hours of your life in a world that doesn't exist, achieving nothing. Church, doing church... It's not like that. It's not a computer simulated game. It involves real people and real cost. And if you're involved as part of a local church, some of you will find yourself at times being crushed You'll come close to despair. You'll be battered and bruised. Some of you will wonder if it's worth continuing. Some of you will have to be taken off as casualties to the field station. There is a cost involved. It is a real battle. If we do church the way some people do computer games, you'll be very exhilarated. Possibly. Satan will be happy and the Holy Spirit will weep. For the church to be the church means that every single one of us needs to be involved in a spiritual battle. And that battle is really costly. You know, one of the things we need to understand is that the enemy is not the enemy. You say, Graham, you do this all the time, don't you? 
The enemy is not the enemy. Do you know that in the ministry of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, Satan turns up in person once. Once. Jesus has just been baptized. He's starting his ministry. The Holy Spirit descends on, descends on him like a dove. And then the Spirit, says the Scriptures, sends him out to be tempted by the devil. And there he's tempted. And at the end, it needs supernatural forces to refresh him because he's so battered and bruised by the experience That is the only time in the Gospels when Satan personally turns up. In John's Gospel, he doesn't turn up at all, really. Who does turn up? Well, Herod, the authorities the deeply religious Pharisees, they turn up and oppose him. And even his own disciples turn up and oppose him. Satan's nowhere to be seen. But he's there, behind the scenes, active and working and doing his destruction. Just because we don't read that he's there doesn't mean that he isn't there. He is there. There's an occasion where Jesus says it's in the middle of Mark's gospel. It comes in Matthew's gospel as well. And in Matthew's gospel, in both Matthew and in, Luke, in, 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 in Mark's gospel, Jesus asks this question, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says to him, especially in Matthew's gospel, he says, that's fantastic. Do you know, Peter, you didn't work that out. God told you. He revealed that to you. Peter, you're a wonder. It doesn't say that, but you know. It does say God told you, revealed it to you. And then Jesus starts to say what the focus of his ministry is, which is that he will go to Jerusalem and he will suffer and be rejected by the authorities and he will die and then he will be raised again And Peter has a meltdown. And he remonstrates against Jesus and says, absolutely not. And I expect that he used some fisherman's language when he said that. I know it's not in the text. But he was a fisherman. He didn't come from seminary or Bible college. I think he said strongly over my dead body, mate. And what's Jesus' response? He says, get behind me, Satan. See, the enemy is not the enemy. I mean, the enemy is the enemy, but the enemy is not the enemy. And if we don't understand that, we will get confused And worse than that, we may fail to be the church. If you think that the enemy is the media or the government or the culture or your next door neighbor who's a real pain in the neck, 
if you think it's institutions, if we think that that's the enemy, but don't recognize the enemy behind the enemy, then we'll put our focus in the wrong place and we will fail because we'll think that if only we can get it right in the media or if only we can get it right in the institutions or if only we can use our resources we'll be able to do this thing called church please don't misunderstand me Christians ought to be involved in the media and the institutions and so on I'm simply saying that the enemy is not the enemy the enemy is the enemy behind the enemy Our battle is not, do do, do you see that? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And that means that we can't do what we're called to do. The church can't be the church by doing it in any other way than doing it the way that God calls us to do church. We can't do it by our own methods and our own means, the only way we can do it is by the means that God gives to us. If we don't understand that and we don't follow that, we will fail to be the church. We have to do it God's way. And so, in verse 10, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong. In the Lord. I I love that phrase. Isn't it so good? You get up in the morning, you say, strong in the Lord. You come to church, you say, you strong in the Lord. If we were a charismatic church, I'd say, turn to the next person, the seat person next to you and say, strong in the Lord. But don't worry. (laughs) But if you want to do it, you can. The trouble is we spiritualize it because it sounds so spiritual and it is. But what does it actually mean on Monday morning? What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? On Tuesday morning where your kids are running riot, what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? On Wednesday when the boss has had a meltdown and he's not a believer, or even if he is a believer, what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? When you're really tempted, when your brothers and sisters in Christ, you think, are not your brothers and sisters in Christ, because if they really were, they wouldn't behave like that. And you despair of them. And you think... If only our church was like that. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? It sounds so motivational, doesn't it? But Paul is not giving a motivational address here. This is not a TED talk. Notice how he goes on. Therefore, verse 13, put on the full armor of God. The Bible is wonderful, did you know? It will say things and then explain what it means more often than not. Isn't that good? Be strong in the Lord has to do with putting on the full armor of God. If you want to be strong in the Lord, you have to put on the full armor of God. Except that that makes it worse, doesn't it? Because again, the gamers amongst you are just having, you, you know, you're, you, don't, you better not have any caffeine because you're already so hyped up. If you have caffeine, you'll probably have a cardiac arrest. One of the versions of this that I've heard more often than I care to remember, it may be that at some stage I even said it myself and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. It goes like this. 
Paul's, Paul's writing, he's dictating the letter to the Ephesians. Often people would dictate and they'd have a, a scribe there writing it down. And he's made some amendments and changes and he's coming to the end. And he wants to have maximum impact. I mean, don't you want to do that at the end when you come to your conclusion? You just want a maximum impact. And so how can he get across to these readers the full force of what he's trying to say and he's, he's searching for inspiration, maybe he's praying for inspiration, I don't know. What's he going to do? And he looks and standing next to him is a Roman soldier and he sees this guy and he's got his armor on and, and suddenly before you can say Ben-Hur, he's away. And the trouble is so are we. See, there's a danger that we spiritualize, be strong in the Lord. There's a danger when it comes to the armor here that Paul's writing about that we go off into fantasy world. As I say, it's a computer gamer's dream, isn't it? You know, I put on the armor this morning, I put my helmet on, and I went off and I fought some ogres. Oh. Trouble is, it's fantasy. Why is it fantasy? Because, first of all, Paul does not have Roman soldiers in mind, with or without armor. And quite what a Roman soldier would be doing guarding Saul in, full, in Paul in full battle dress, I have never quite understood. But Paul doesn't have in mind the armor of the Roman soldier. Do you know why I know that? And why you know, should know that as well? And that's because the text tells us. Look at what it says in verse 13. Put on the full armor of God. It's God's armor that he's talking about. More specifically, it's the armor worn by God's Messiah. It's the armor of Jesus that he's talking about. The armor of Jesus. And you know, when we become a follower of Jesus, we are in Christ. We are united with him. And that means we get to wear his armor. That's what he's talking about. He's not getting it from the Roman military. He's getting it more specifically from the Old Testament. From Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 59. And if I had time and you were happy to sacrifice lunch, I would walk you through Isaiah 59. But I am going to refer to Isaiah 59. Please would you turn to it, page 741. So keep a finger in Ephesians 6 because we're going to come back to it. But, but please turn to page 741, which is... Isaiah 59. Here's this great cry that echoes the prophet as he looks upon the state of God's people at the time. 
Surely the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. And then you have the way that God berates his people. These are people who don't speak the truth. No one's concerned about justice. They don't know the way of peace. They walk in the dark. They're like blind people. They look for justice, but don't practice justice and righteousness. And so it says in verse 13, so justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Verse 15, truth is nowhere to be found. And then look at what, what's there in the next bit of verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own right, his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and put the, sal- the helmet of salvation on his head. And then he goes on to say how he deals with those enemies of injustice and so on, and ends by saying that the Redeemer will come. In Ephesians, Paul is referring to God's armor, and that armor is the armor worn by his Messiah. That's what he's talking about. Now, it's metaphorical language, and and I realize that some of us struggle with metaphorical language, so just in case somebody is thinking this, I don't want you to imagine that Jesus wandered around the streets of first century Palestine wearing a helmet and a breastplate and holding a sword and carrying a shield, just in case. We need to understand how the imagery works, and very simply put, it works like this. The armor represents what Jesus brings. Have you got that? The armor represents what Jesus brings. So have a look back in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. This is addressed to us, but he's referring to the armor that Jesus wears, and the armor is what Jesus brings. So stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the, the boots are assumed, I think, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. You've got four pieces of armor there that are, a force, that are associated with four things that Jesus brings. What does Jesus bring? He brings truth. He brings righteousness in place of injustice and unrighteousness. He brings peace. He brings faith. And if you trace through the first chapters or the previous chapters in Ephesians, you'll find all of these things. Verse 4 and 21, the truth that's in Jesus. Chapter 5 and verse 9, the fruit of the light. Notice light as opposed to darkness as in Isaiah. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Chapter 2 and verse 14, he, that is Christ, is our peace. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to those who were far away and those who are near. Faith, chapter 2 and verse 8, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this isn't from yourselves, it's the gift of God. The armor represents what Jesus brings. So let's go back to verse 10. 
And then verse 11, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God. What does all this mean? Number one, it means we get to share in the victory that Christ has already won. We get to share in the victory that Christ has already won. Be strong in the Lord. We are united with Christ and therefore we get to share in his victory over the powers of darkness. And that's why he goes on to say, as he does, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. And then verse 14, stand firm. Do you get that? Standing is not advancing. We don't have to go and fight the battle against the spiritual powers. We don't have to go and defeat Satan Christ has already defeated him. That's not what we're called to do. That's what the Messiah does. Our calling is to stand. The final suppression of the powers is yet to come, but the victory has already been won. And because the final suppression is in the future, there's still a battle, but the powers are a defeated enemy. And that's the basis of the confidence in which we can fulfill our calling, which is to stand to stand against the attacks that come to us, to withstand the assaults. Paul is not talking about going anywhere. This isn't about evangelism. Please don't misunderstand me. Evangelism is critical. As a church, we say our aim is to make followers of Jesus Christ. And critical to that is evangelism, but Paul is not talking about evangelism. He's talking about standing and withstanding the assaults of the enemy. You see, we need to understand the arena that Paul has in mind. Where's the arena of the conflict? What is standing all about? Well, ask yourself the question, what has Paul been writing about just before this? You don't have to shout out. We're not that kind of church. Don't worry. What's Paul been writing about? Here he is, he's talking about battles and armor. And you think, my goodness me, what kind of arena does he have in mind? Is he talking about places in the world where there's actually physical opposition to Christ? And you get put in prison or you get killed if you're a follower of Jesus. Is that what he's talking about? What's he been talking about Well, immediately prior to this, he's been talking about the first century household. Husbands and wives, not the Sudan. Children and parents, masters and slaves. The immediate context is the household. And as we saw As we looked at that, where the household goes is where the church goes, so those relationships matter. And prior to that, he's been talking about relationships in the church in general, the relationships amongst God's people. So chapter 4, he begins the second half of Ephesians by saying, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
The arena that Paul has in mind, have you got it? It's the ordinary. It's our marriages, for those of us who are married. It's our families. It's our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. That's the arena. And that's where it's possible to lose it as a church. To fail to be the church in precisely those areas. That's so often where it's really hard, isn't it? Relationships are difficult. Relationships with one another, relationships in families, relationships between husbands and wives. That's where the attack comes. If the church is to be the church, that's where we need to stand. And at times that will come close to breaking some of us. You know, sometimes it's easy to do those things when everybody agrees with you and everybody wants to do what you want to do. Everything's fine, isn't it? Loving your neighbor is not a problem. The problem is when they don't want to do what you want to do. When there are huge disagreements. Now, how do we do this standing then? Well, we're to put on the armor. Remember, the armor represents what Jesus does. So if you worked it out, what putting on the armor means? You got it? Well, Paul's already talked about it. He's already used that language of putting on and indeed putting off. In chapter 4, for example, put on your new life in Christ, which means do it. Put off the old life. Don't do it. Do you see how practical this is? To put on the full armor of God means to behave like Jesus Christ. It means to imitate him. It means to do the kinds of things that he did in the areas that Paul's talking about. And we can do that because we're in Christ Because we're united with Christ, we get to wear his armor, and therefore we can do those things. So truth, to wear the belt of truth buckled around your waist means, well, chapter 4 and verse 15, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. That's putting on truth. Righteousness, be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Chapter 4, verse 24. Peace, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Chapter 4 and verse 3, Christ has brought us peace. He's made one new humanity. And therefore we are to be peacekeepers. Faith, we're to continue to exercise faith. It's really practical, isn't it? To put on the armor means to do those things. That's what it means. We're not in the realm of virtual reality here. And sometimes it will come close to breaking some of you to do those things. Notice what Paul says about 
that you can stand in the evil day? Do you notice that? He says, so that in verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the evil day comes, churches experience evil days sometimes, when a church can barely hang together because it's so riven by disagreements, by broken marriages. I was talking to somebody some years ago whose church was experiencing a spate of marriage breakdowns and it was coming close to destroying the church. Here's the principle. If we have any hope at all of standing when the evil day comes, we need to be standing now. That is, doing those things, putting on the armor now so that when the evil day comes, we stand a chance of being able to stand. To put on the armor means to do those things. And then we've got these two last pieces of armor and I'm close to the end, so lunch might not be as burned as you fear. Normal service will be restored next week. Trust me. Two last pieces of armor there in verse 17, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And Paul kind of shifts the language a bit here and I think he's saying just grab these things. Remember your salvation. Grab that. Grab that. You've already heard the word of your salvation, chapter 1, verse 13. We are already raised with Christ, saved by grace. Christ is our Savior. He's the Savior of the body, chapter 5 and verse 23. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We're forgiven. We're God's people. Christ's already won the victory over the powers. The Holy Spirit already dwells in us. Grab that because it means you can stand. Whatever happens, we are safe. Remember that, because if you lose sight of that, you'll go under. We can do this. We have the authority to do this, is what Paul's saying. We have the authority, and we're safe. And then, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's all that about? When, when, when people are talking about this little bit here, I, I, I think sometimes people just can't help themselves. The <laughs> sword of the Spirit, and they're off. They're off into the darkest spiritual places and they're taking the attack to the enemy and taking the gospel to people. As I've said, taking the gospel to people is absolutely crucial. We must do it. Paul is certainly not saying don't do that, but it's not what he's talking about here. And he isn't talking about defeating Satan with a word. You know, some people will say, you know, I, I just speak out to Satan. There's a wonderful Reformation hymn by Martin Luther and on this 400 years of the the, the anniversary of the Reformation, far be it from me to criticize Martin Luther. Far be it from me to criticize Martin Luther anyway. He's a hero in many ways. Uh, but there's that great, a mighty fortress our God is still, and it says a word, speaking of saying a word will quickly slay him. And I kind of know what that means. But that's not what Paul's talking about. I mean, if, you do, if you're in the habit of doing that kind of thing and it helps you do it, it's, it's okay. And it can be very encouraging to us. But the principle is this. The sword of the Spirit is meant for us. Together. Quoting Scripture to Satan won't benefit him, nor, I think, is he much affected by it. He already knows it. 
Shall I tell you what really gets Satan, what really gives him a bad day? If you want to give Satan a headache, let me tell you what to do. Use the word of God to speak it to each other. Somebody's experiencing a hard time as a follower of Jesus and they're struggling with their faith and you speak the word to them that encourages them and builds them up. Somebody's really struggling in terms of some area of sin in their life and you get alongside them as their brother and sister or sister in Christ and you speak the word to them. When there are things that happen in our church family where there's division, we need to speak the word to one another. And as a result of that, lives are changed. Relationships can be restored sometimes really profoundly. And the church is becoming more and more the church. That gives Satan a really bad Satan doesn't really care if we talk about to each other about our new homes and our holidays and whatever it is. Nothing wrong with doing that, but he really couldn't care less. He doesn't even care too much often if we speak theology or religion. But you will really give him a bad day if you use the word of God, if you use the sword of the Spirit to encourage the church to be more and more the church of Jesus Christ. We need to put on the whole armor of God. Notice all of it. We all need all the armor. It's not just for senior ministers. It's not just for wardens. It's not just for council. All of us need all the armor, and we need all the armor. Sometimes I hear people saying things like this. All you need is the word of God. And I kind of know what they mean. But if Paul had meant that, he would have said that, and he doesn't say that. We need the whole armor of God. And then he ends. That's a good word at this point, isn't it? And then he ends. Because notice he doesn't stop with Put on the armor so that you can stand. He says, pray. Verse 18. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. We need to put on the armor so that we can stand and we need to pray. And praying in the spirit, I take it means in union with him. If you like, our hearts are so bound with the Holy Spirit that we pray out of what's on his heart. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit, not praying arrogantly, but praying from His heart because we're in union with Him. If you like, we hear Him praying and pray what is on His heart, prompted by Him. Pray in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers. Pray at every opportunity. Don't neglect prayer. Be alert and pray for others. Pray also for me, Paul says. Paul's facing his own evil day. He's going to stand before Caesar and he's going to have to give a defense. And I think that's what he's praying for. It's not about his evangelism. It's about standing before Caesar 
when he can give testimony to Jesus Christ and the gospel and have the right words to say in that context. Paul's great concern for the Ephesians and his great concern, if he could only see us, would be for us to be the church. We will fail to be the church of Jesus Christ unless we engage in the battle using the resources God gives us. And that's a tragedy if we fail, not just for us, but for all the people around us. Because in the church, the future is broken in. The encouragement is that Jesus has already won the victory. And therefore, we could stand wearing the armor that Jesus gives us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would write your word very deeply into our hearts so that we might be the people you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing. We're going to sing about the greatness of uh, God, about his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Please stand as we sing.